There is, um, there's no children's church this morning, so I don't need to invite people to dismiss for that, which is good because I'd probably forget anyway. So um, we are in the midst of what I think is an exciting opportunity as we go through these letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. Because as we go through these churches, we, we see, as I, I think you saw last week and as you'll continue to see, in a very real sense we see God giving in a spiritual audit of these churches. We see God describing what's going on in the church and ushering either his praise or his rebuke. And so as, as we spend these next six weeks, we have an opportunity to very clearly and directly see the kind of thing that God values in a church, the kind of thing that makes God go, yes, they got it. Or the kind of thing that makes God go, no, they, they don't get it, and they're doing what they ought not to be doing. And so I, I hope and pray that you will use these remaining six weeks to prayerfully reflect on the status of our hearts and the status of our church and to pray with those themes in mind that we as a congregation of gathered individual Christians would more come to ever reflect the kind of things that God values in a church that we could earn his praise rather than his rebuke. you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords and that you are with us even now through your Holy Spirit. Father God, we confess that you alone are Lord and we thank you that we can proclaim you as such. We pray, God, that you would continue to guide us, speak to us, nourish us, feed us, challenge us according to your wisdom and your will, that we would walk out of here this morning more shaped into the sons and daughters you would have us all be. In Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. You know, I had this interesting thing happen to me shortly after I became a Christian. I think it was about 12 years ago. When I experienced both the wonder and the associated pain that sometimes it means to come to Christ. The, the wonder was just coming to know Jesus Christ. And for the first time reading the word of God and, and getting a picture of who God is and who he calls me to be, the the wonder of those first few times you get down your knees and you pray and you say, what am I supposed to say? <laughs> what do I pray for? The, the first time I went to a conference in the hopes that, hey, somehow maybe this is going to grow my faith. The, the time when I first learned there was a thing called Christian music. How about that? The, the first few opportunities I had to share the gospel with those in my life that needed to hear it, this was a wondrous time in my life. And yet it was also a time that began more and more to bring about a measure of pain. Because, you see, people began to notice something has changed in Christopher's life and some of them would say, we don't know that we like it. He's not the person we used to know. And, and, and that changed over time. At first it was kind of okay. It was, hey, I'm, I'm glad you found this religion thing. That's great. Whatever works for you. And, and then over time that changed to, hey, Chris, I think this religion thing is a good thing, but, you know, you want to be a well-rounded person. Someone very close to me said. They said, you want to be a well-rounded person, and so kind of don't throw all your eggs in that Jesus basket. Like, make sure you make time for other things, too. And, and then the more I was, I'd spend time with this person very close to me, they would, um, they, their criticism be, became more pointed, you see. They would get frustrated when we had a disagreement about some issue in life or something that was going on in the world, and as I would kind of defend my view with what, 
God says in his word that happened to disagree with them. Oh, all of a sudden things were changing rapidly in this relationship. I'll remember the day this person angrily left church when I was baptized. Because they explained later they were very mad that when I got up or before I went down in the water in the tank, I gave Christ the credit for my salvation, my very life at that moment. And this bothered them very much. And they said to me, Chris, you can become one of those religious nuts. I can see it. And I'm, I'm worried about you. I'm, it's not that I'm against you. It's I'm afraid you're going to get involved in some kind of cult. And you know, everybody's going to read about you in the paper. And you're going to be the kind of guy that goes on and drinks Kool-Aid. And I was like, I never liked Kool-Aid. And, and this antagonism grew and it grew and it grew. And as Christ continued to advance his reign over my life, the more I felt this very important relationship wither. And this brought with it a great measure of pain because I knew that it was within my power to make that withering stop. I knew that it wasn't because I was a Christian that I was suffering the loss of this relationship. It was because of the extent to which I tried to let Christ be Lord of my life that I was suffering the loss of this relationship. And so the temptation was, well, well, I'm trying to give God this much and maybe if I just ratchet it back a little bit. So I'll still give God something, but if I give him just a little bit less, maybe this person won't have an issue anymore and and things can be good as normal. I can stop the pain if I give Christ less. I didn't have a biblical view of suffering in my life. I had no category to put this in. Why are people I care about against me for trying to accept and worship God as he reveals himself to be. What am I to do about this? I did not have a category of suffering. And a biblical view of suffering is one of the greatest gifts the church in Smyrna gives us here this morning. If you want to open it up to Revelation chapter 2, it should be on page 1216 if you have a pew Bible. Page 1216, Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. We're going to spend a few minutes this morning kind of trying to examine the situation in Smyrna specifically that has given rise to this suffering on the part of the church. Then we're going to take a little bit of a look at where, where God is in the midst of this trial the church is undergoing. And then we'll close with three observations that I think this text and the wider council of Scripture teaches on a biblical view of suffering. So we're told that the church in Smyrna is suffering and that we're told that the suffering is going to increase rather than decrease, aren't we? 
We're told that right now that they are afflicted and in a great measure of physical poverty. But soon some of them are going to be handed over, persecuted, and some of that number will in fact die. John goes so far as to identify the group that is behind this suffering, referring to them as a, a synagogue of Satan is his term, that is making slanderous reports about the Christians. And we find this overarching theme here and throughout Scripture of the great spiritual war going on beneath the surface between God and his people and everything that opposes him. And I think we do well to wonder, how did things get this bad? I mean, we're talking about people being thrown in prison. How did things get this bad? And, and I think we do well to wonder what specifically caused that. Was this the kind of thing like we read about in some parts of the country today where, heck, if someone walks by and they hear you singing how great thou art in a room, they call the police, you get rounded up and carried off to jail? Is it that? Is it, is it you know, someone saw a baptism, they said, bring them in. This is it. Or, or was there a more nuanced reason for this suffering that's going on. You know, Smyrna was a very wealthy city in the Roman Empire. Definitely not the most wealthy city, but a wealthy city nonetheless. And in fact, it's rather odd on the surface, I think, for us to read that as a collective whole, the Christians viewed themselves as being poor, we're told. That's just rather odd in, in the context of a wealthy city to have all of the Christians collectively say, yeah, we're, we're, we're poor. It would be as if saying, well, all the Christians in Hingham are poor. Well, well, some maybe, but to make a collective statement like that would be rather remarkable in, in any middle or upper class area to say, as a whole, they consider themselves poor. And, and we're left to, I think, wonder why, because here we have this city that you know, was remarkable in the ancient world. It had, had paved streets. It had a great library. It had a large gymnasium. It had a shrine even to Homer, the writer of the Greek epic poems. This was a place where things happened. And, and we know that one of the things that contributed to this collective wealth in the city of Smyrna was the presence of trade guilds you know, what we might call unions today. So if you were a rug maker, if you were a carpenter, if you were a sewer, if you were a brewer or a restaurant owner, whatever your profession, you likely had a trade guild for that profession. And, and this offered an awful lot of opportunity. It offered legal protection. It increased your chances of getting work and labor. So, you know, and, and it offered a sense of identity. You could get together with people where you could share tips. You could increase in the, the artistry of your skill, perhaps. Could have, and you could share contacts. And it was a very central feature of working class society in the city of Smyrna. But there was a catch. There's an important catch. Regularly, these trade guilds would get together, you know, each of them, and they would have a great feast, kind of like a great Thanksgiving feast, you know, with a great meal where they would get together. And that feast would be in honor of the God of that profession. So you can imagine, you know, if you, in today's terms, if you were a banker, there would be a god of banking. If you were in the insurance industry, there would be a god of the insurance industry. If you were a teacher, there would be the god of teaching. Again, this is in today's language. And so, so each profession had that god. And so if you wanted to be part of the guild, you had to go and be a part of this sacrifice, which would put a follower of Christ in a rather touchy position, wouldn't it? Because it's not as if you would suffer simply by being a Christian, but if you really wanted to be serious about the extent to which that faith transformed your life, you had a very difficult question before you. 
would you join the guild or not? You know, again, in today's language, to not join the guild, I think, in a very real, real sense, would be like saying, well, um, do you want to not have a, a really nice house in a nice town where your kids can receive a good K-12 education? Do you want to have the opportunity to help your kids go through college so that they can graduate without indebtedness? Do you, do you want to have a, a retirement plan such that you can actually retire at some point in time? Then you better join a trade guild. Because if you don't, there's a good likelihood you will never get any of those things that so many of us consider essential to our lives. So by being, be, letting Christ fully be Lord over your life in Smyrna was really in a sense saying, I am going to let my ceiling of accruable wealth go from here all the way down here. Because unless I join a trade guild, I will never penetrate that. And it will bring a great effect on my life, the life of my family. And I'll be the one carpenter on the block who never has enough. And yet that is only the beginning of a problem these Smyrna Christians were facing. Uh, the roots of suffering run deeper still. You know, we, we know enough about the Roman Empire, I think, all of us, to know that it was incredibly diverse, right? I mean, it, it took up the entire, you know, what's often called the known world at that time. And so you have people of different languages, cultures, and belief systems all calling themselves Romans. And this is significant. I mean, any of us, any of you in this room that have moved to New England from some other part of the country, let alone another country, know what a challenge it is moving just to New England. I, I always laugh when I run into someone you know, that's new to the area and we're talking about how it's going, particularly if they're from certain parts of the country. And then they finally candidly say it. You guys are so cold. You're so mean. I'm like, well, we're not really mean. We just tell you what everyone else thinks but doesn't have the guts to say you know, I remember when we moved to Connecticut from New York, and on the first week of work, my mother's boss told her, you talk funny. You better stop that. And I was like, what? You know, so, so we're from New York. What do you want? Um, but this is how New England is. And, and we don't have to change the side of the road we drive on. We don't have to change our political affiliation. We don't have to accept or adopt a new belief system or a different language. This is within the country. And yet, if you, you move here, you feel a great sense of culture shock. Many do, at least. So imagine the struggle of the Roman Empire. You know, the greater and the larger and more diverse any organization becomes, the more acute the problem of maintaining unity within that organization is, isn't it? And the Roman Empire had a great, to them, solution for this problem. They began what we know as the cult of the emperor. They, in a very real sense, from Julius Caesar, Domitian, others, Hadrian, they, were, they thought of themselves as living gods, meant to be worshipped. So there would be a temple to Hadrian or Domitian. And a certain percent of your, in effect, tax dollars were meant to go fund that temple. Imagine that today. Imagine if you found out that the federal government was taking 5% of your income to build a Christian science reading room. That would be a rather of a difficult quandary, wouldn't it? Um, you know, we, we have coins of the period featuring Domitian's face on it saying, Father of the Gods. It was widespread. And so Christians were faced with a, with a unique challenge. Because if unity was the greatest difficult thing for them to maintain you can well infer then that anyone that would break that unity was seen as the worst, it, it was seen as the worst form of sedition and treason. 
If the greatest danger to the Roman Empire was unity because of its diversity, then anyone who threatened that unity needed to be dealt with strong. And, you know, and, and again, it's, it's rather interesting. You know, we know from the period that, uh, in general, no Christians joined the Roman military in the first few centuries. And it's not because they had any beef with the military per se. It was more because to join the Roman military, you needed to make a public profession of faith in the Roman emperor as God. So in a very real sense, you had to do what you know, we see people do here a few weeks ago in the baptistry where you say, yeah, I'm confessing Christ as my Lord and Savior. To join the Roman military, that's exactly what you needed to do. And so because of Christians' failure to do that, when Rome is falling in the 4th century, you've got everyone turning around and looking at the Christians and saying, it's their fault. If they just grab a spear and get on the wall, we could deal with the barbarians. They're the ruination of our culture and society. And Christians stood back and said, we're going to put a line here, we will go no further. We'll give up the whole country if it means denying Christ as our only Lord. Jews were the only group that was exempt from this worship of the emperor, which is an interesting historical subnote we don't have time for. And they were reviled for it, even though they were allowed to do it. And we know that the early Romans thought Christians were Jews. They thought Christians were just a subtext of Jews. You could have Pharisees, Sadducees, and Christians. And you get the sense as you read here about this synagogue that the Jewish leadership was all too happy to explain to the Romans that the Christians were something entirely different, thereby bringing further suffering if if the Christians decided to live out the fullness of their conscience and God's call upon their lives. And so then it's fair to step back as we see the suffering that's coming about through this backdrop and say, where is God in the midst of this? Great books have been written on the subject. Where is God in the midst of this pain? Last night I finished a book... uh, Everyone's heard of it, I think, The Shack, which I think, good and bad, the main premise is, where is God in the midst of personal tragedy? That's that's a question at one point many of us struggle with. Where is God in the midst of suffering and tragedy? Where is he? And yet we see that Jesus is right there. He says he knows their afflictions and he knows their poverty. He knows about the people who are trying to get them in trouble for being Christians. He knows about the human opposition against them that has behind it a legion of hellish forces. Not only does he know about their suffering that they are currently enduring, he knows about the suffering around the corner that hasn't even happened yet. He knows exactly how long it's going to last. He knows exactly how intense it's going to become. And he has enough confidence in their ability to endure that he can say... Be faithful. You can make it through this. And so as Christians around the world today suffer for their faith, we're reminded that we do not worship some far-off watchmaker who does not see or does not care about the ways in which we suffer for the name of Christ, but a God who in the incarnation entered into our suffering and who is intimately aware of the length breadth, width, character, and very nature of it, and who is there. When we go through a trial, we're reminded that even in the moments when it seems entirely unbearable, those moments when you cry out, God, I can't take it anymore, stop it. As one would imagine that perhaps some of these Smyrna Christians said as they were being dragged off into cells, we're reminded that we worship the God who says, I have every hair on your head numbered 
and I have you here in my hand. And there is not a thing on heaven and earth or a person that will take me out of that hand, take you out of my hand. Jesus is right there. The suffering itself, itself, we are told, is a test. Will these Christians buckle under the physical, financial, and societal pressures that are surrounding them? Will they legitimize the worship of the emperor? You can imagine how it would go. Well, what if I just say it? What if, what if I just say that he's God, but I don't really mean it? What if I just sign off on the dotted line, but in my heart that's not what I believe? This form of lying became prevalent among a certain order in the Middle Ages who said, hey, I can tell a lie, and it's not really a lie if in my heart I'm answering a different question than is being asked. Let your mind play around with that one over lunch. Would they say it though they didn't mean it? You can imagine it. Will they allow hostile opposition to lay their hands on them forcibly and painfully because of one culture's desire to achieve transcultural unity at the expense of the lordship of Christ in their lives? Jesus reminds them that he is the first and the last and that he has already gone before them. He has suffered and died, even as some of them will. But He was risen again. Though they, from a worldly perspective, they are poor and lacking, they are rich because they have made an idol of neither family, friends, wealth, station, or country, but given Christ lordship over all. Did you notice that there's no rebuke for this church? There's no rebuke. I mean, isn't that passing strange? That God can look at this church made up of sinful human beings, of flawed people like you and me, this church that could be called a hospital of sinners where people don't have it all together and are not perfect and this side of heaven are still works in progress and yet he can have no rebuke. This is remarkable. And, and, and we see in these seven letters that this is often not the case, often there, there is a rebuke. Sometimes there is just a rebuke, yet here there is none. And this should, I think, both free us to allow Christ's Lord's Lordship to fill our very lives, and it should give us an onus to let that happen, because all of a sudden we're reminded it's possible. The thing that, that, that somehow, in my mind, I think is inconceivable, that God could kind of collectively look at a church and say, I have no rebuke for you just be faithful and keep doing it. But, but here we see that lived out. Remarkable. But that is what we, in fact, see. Are we willing to pay the price necessary for that kind of fidelity? He promises them that if they are faithful unto death, they will not suffer eternally. Though they die, they shall live. Notice verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That might be familiar language. We see Jesus say it frequently in the Gospels, particularly after some kind of hard-hitting parable or hard-hitting teaching. He steps back and he says, He who has an ear, let him hear. It's a way of Jesus saying, I've told you this truth. I've, I've shown you, revealed to you this will of God. Now test yourself. What is the condition of your heart? The kind of thing that we're supposed to do every time we approach this table and we step back and we look inward and we ask God, search me, search my heart. 
Am I responding to your message? Am I going to incorporate this truth in my life? Am I really surrendering all to you? It encourages sober reflection and a faithful response from our very will. Let's turn now and look at three implications of this text and the broader counsel of the Word of God. Number one, suffering should be normal for Christians. Often the church, I think, gets suffering throughout history in in many ways really wrong. On one hand, I mean, you you see it in the book of Job, right? You see Job has an awful lot of, 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 of wealth and a good family and things are going great. All of a sudden, Job loses everything and his three wise muckety-muck friends show up and they're like, hey man, you asked for this. Let's just get over it. You must have done something to bring this upon you. Hey, God wouldn't punish you if you were honoring him. God only punishes people that sin against him. So let's confess it and move on and we'll figure out where you're going to live after that. It's really the same thing we see in in the Gospels, the same... uh, living out of awful teaching that Jesus confronts in the Pharisees. Hey, I know we got it all together and things are going good for us. That's because we honor God. But that leper over there and, and that struggling single mom over there and that poor person over here, they must have sinned. They're sinners. We're better than they are. Look at everything God's given us. And yet, Jesus himself says, remember the words I spoke to you which already gives us a sense this is not the first time he said what he's about to say. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. We know how it turned out for him. And then we confer what that should mean for us. Suffering for the name of Christ is not an accident. It is not necessarily a sign of God's displeasure. It is a promised effect that will spring from our being Christians where we identify with Christ who suffered for us in a world so opposed to him. In America, however, many of us, myself included, I'll admit, really don't like suffering very much. Let's just be honest. And and we often think of suffering for the name of Christ as something that doesn't happen here. This is a Christian nation after all. Suffering happens way over there. You know, we can, we can hear about suffering in maybe China or in the Sudan or Iran. It happens over there. But this is America. We, sh- we don't suffer. We shouldn't have to suffer. That doesn't happen. I, I, I was speaking with a teenager in the class I was teaching at school recently. And, uh, and they're talking to me and, and they just share with me. They say, you know what, I, I really had an awful week. And I said, why? What's going on? And, and they go on to relate this story of how the... They were on the sports team and a few people on that team found out they were a Christian and, and basically they began to say, we want nothing to do with you. And her comment to me was, you know what, I feel this is so not fair. This is so unjust. This is so wrong that I would lose this relationship just because I'm a Christian. And I had an incredible amount of compassion which helped, made me not say anything at the time. But I was struck by the way the wheels were turning. And I'm struck now by the vast difference we see of that with Peter when he says in, in 1 Peter, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the suffering of Christ. It's not a cosmic accident. 
In fact, if you're suffering, that's kind of where I expect you to be. Shocking. Many of us in the West, I think we would admit that to one degree or another, we tend to try to avoid suffering when it comes. And yet God's command to this church is not, don't worry, I'm, I'm going to get you out of it. His reward is promised on the other side of this suffering. Nowhere in Scripture are we beckoned to view and pray for suffering to say, God, take this burden away from me. Yet we are often exhorted to be faithful in the midst of it. To pray for a, a strong back, strong elbows and weak, knee, weak knees that we would have strength to honor God in the midst of whatever suffering the name of Christ is bringing about in our life and our livelihood and our relationships. Point two. Suffering gives us an opportunity to magnify God's worth. You know, there's a sense in which the Christians in Smyrna didn't have to suffer, isn't there? In some ways, this text, I think, speaks more to us than it does to Christians in other parts of the world because it is not as if they suffered simply by being a Christian. It is not as if, hey, I heard Joey was a Christian. Call the secret police. Let's have him locked away. Hey, let's try to break in on this prayer meeting and start torturing these Christians. No, the suffering was a secondary effect of their faith, not the primary effect. The suffering was only brought about through the zealous nature and degree to which they took their faith. If they would have backed off to here, like, you know, I was tempted to, the suffering might have entirely gone away. But, but they said, no, loud and proud, we're going all the way. Nothing is going to stop us. They allowed themselves to be dirt poor, bruised, battered, preferring instead the crown of life only because they were faithful to God's command to seek first His kingdom and honor Him above wealth, family, friends, everything. We show the worth of something by what we're willing to give up for it, don't we? We magnify, we display the value and the treasure of something by what we're willing to lose for its sake. We show the relationships that are most important in our lives when we, by the people we give the most time to and those that we do not. We show the possessions that we think have the most value in our lives by how we spend our money and that which we buy and that which we don't. We show the dreams and ambitions that have the most value to us by, those, by the others that we lay aside in pursuit of the former. We show most that Jesus is indeed the pearl of great price when we reveal what we are willing to lose and what we are willing to suffer in order to be called his son and his daughter and to receive a well-done, good and faithful servant. Like the Smyrnas, when we honor God in the midst of trial, we show that he is worth it, that he who suffered as we come together here to celebrate, that he who suffered is worth in turn suffering for. Point three, the lack of suffering in the life of Christian is in fact the real problem. If suffering is, is, is the norm for Christians and if suffering can, for the sake of Christ, can glorify God, then, then, then lack of it is what really should keep us up at night, shouldn't it? 
If we find ourselves in you know, our, our small group or with a group of Christian friends and week after week, month after month, maybe even year after year, we find ourselves unable to think of any way that our faith is costing us, then we have a problem. If when asked week after week, month after month, year after year, hey, do you feel like, you know, how do you feel like you're suffering for your faith? We say, I don't feel like I'm suffering at all. My faith isn't costing me anything. It's easy. It's great. I'm not losing anything to attain it. Well, I think that's the kind of thing that would make Peter and Jesus, as we see their words here, concerned. I think John Stott rightly observes, the ugly truth is that we tend to avoid suffering with compromise tend to avoid suffering and compromise. And so when we wonder why if suffering is promised to believers, and in fact we see Christians suffering throughout the majority of the world, why are we not suffering in America? The heart-indicting question is, is it because as a collective, many of us are compromising far too much in our faith and faithfulness? You know, there's a book I would recommend to you, um, They're going to have it at the book table. I wrote a blog on it on the website called Why You Think the Way You Do From Rome to Home. And the writer makes a very compelling case. It's kind of a, take you four hours to read. It'll give you the best snapshot I've ever seen of the growth of history, theology, and philosophy from Rome to 21st century America. And he makes a very hard-hitting, scary, compelling observation that we look almost exactly like ancient Rome today in 21st century America. That this pagan culture of ancient Rome looks very close to 21st century democratic America. And that is a cause of concern and I think makes it a worthy read. Today, in fact, you're, not, you're allowed to worship wherever you want, right? As long as you only take that worship too far, or only so far, I should say. You're allowed to worship whoever you want as long as you don't start saying that you know, your way is the only way. I mean, good grief, why would anyone say that? You're, you're allowed to have faith as long as it's a privatized faith. The minute that faith goes public, that, well, that's when heads are going to start to turn and problems may start to develop. Your boss is going to have no problem with you having faith unless that conscience brought about by faith costs your company an emerging market or unless that faith starts to threaten interstaff unity and character. You're not going to have any, any friend want to stop hanging out with you, most likely, just because you're a Christian, unless you start letting the claims of Christ so fill your life that they start to feel uncomfortable around you because they feel the light of Christ reigning in and through you then there is a problem. The cult of the emperor for today is what I think Josh McDowell rightly calls the new tolerance. You see, tolerance historically understood would be what? It would be saying, hey, I'm a Christian and, and maybe i got this friend next to me and he's a Muslim and we can each think each other is dead wrong. But I'm not going to try to hurt him and he's not going to try to hurt me and we're going to shake hands and agree that we think each other is wrong without trying to hurt each other. The kind of tolerance we see, you know, Christian great G.K. Chesterton have when he would get up in Britain and he would debate the great atheist George Bernard Shaw and it would be fiery, incendiary language and then afterwards they'd go share a Guinness together at the bar. 
there was, there was a respect and a love despite an outspoken, contrasting worldview. Yet today we're told that you, in order to tolerate someone, you need to, I think, equally validate their opinion as value, is equally valued, valid to your own. You see this in a lot of educational publications today. You need to endorse someone else's belief system or view life choice as having the exact same truthfulness and integrity as whatever you hold. Much different character. Minneapolis Star Tribune article recently reported an initiative now underway in the state by, let me get this right, the Race, Culture, Class, and Gender Task Group that could have far-reaching implications for educators, would-be educators, and parents. This, This is out of this week, or this month, rather. If it is approved, and again, if it is approved, in order to get licensure, teachers will have to admit publicly that every one of them is bigoted. They will have to agree to the myth of meritocracy of the United States and confess that as a country we are sexist, racist, and homophobic. The task force's recommendation for dealing with anyone who disagrees with this is, quote, clear steps and procedures for working with non-performing students, including a remediation plan. If you've read 1984 by George Orwell, you're probably seeing the similarities. In layman terms, it's you're going to believe and think what we want you to believe and think, and you're going to tell other people you're going to do that, and if you don't, you're not going to have a job done if it is approved. And, and the question that we'll, we could perhaps soon face Christians in that state is, hey, I'm a teacher. What do I say? Will I go through with it? Or is this where God is calling me to draw a line in the sand? Hey, I'm a parent. I've got three kids in school. Do I want to keep sending them to this institution when this is what's being taught there? What do I do? Where is the line? I'm of the firm conviction that if we do not prayerfully and presciently decide where that line of faith is ahead of us, it needs to be drawn where we say, here I stand, I will go no further, that when we're up upon that line, we're much more likely to falter and fall through it and fail to put God first and seek his kingdom first. No one today is condemning us for being Christians in America, but living out the fullness of that faith could well cost us job opportunities, friendships, station, and affluence. And so the, the hard-hitting question we're, I think, called to ask as we journey home shortly is, where am I being tempted to compromise my faith at this hour, and where could I be tempted next week and next year? Where is the line that if my company says, in order to have a job here, this is what you've got to say and believe and sign on to? What is the line that they might say that I'll say, no, I don't know what it's going to mean, but I can't do that. Where is the line in, in, in the relationships that we have where we say, hey, I can do this and I can be in this kind of place and I can go to this kind of party or I can you know, hang out with these people. But if it goes here, if I'm asked my opinion on such and such, this is what I'm going to say and this is what I'm going to do, I will not cross that line even if it brings suffering. The church of Smyrna was suffering and for their devotion. They weren't suffering for being Christians. They were suffering for the extent of their devotion to Christ. Important distinction that again meets us here in America more. Instead of having rejected them, God praises them for their faithfulness and affirms His presence with them. 
Suffering, we are told, is to be normal for Christians, offering us an opportunity to glorify the living God and making the absence of it the real problem. I want to close with a personal anecdote that came up this week. I have a friend of mine who is is kind of one of these G.K. Chesterton figures. He is a, a committed Christian, yet incredibly received, well, generally received incredibly well by people of, of, of widely different opinions, beliefs, and faiths. He's being loving and charitable. And he did something this week that has um, got, gotten him labeled a Nazi. And um, he, he signed on to something that was just published last week called the Manhattan Declaration. You can read about it online, the manhattandeclaration.org. I read it and signed it last week myself. It is a statement made by a number of Christian leaders who have come forward together and say, hey, we, we want to draw that line in the sand now, and we want to bring Christians you know, together around that line, and we want to issue a statement about how we believe the Lordship of Christ influences our life and faith and our families and our communities and the things we're going to be for. It is not partisan-based. It crosses denominations, political affiliations, even countries, and it is generating support. And so within a few days of being, he was one of the first 100 signers, within a few days of doing this, all of a sudden he receives a slew of hate email, including being labeled a Nazi. So it's a compelling seven-page document. I'm going to read to you just the very end to give you something of the flavor, because I think this is almost exactly what was going on in a different context in the church in Smyrna, the document. Going back to the earliest days of the church, Christians have refused to compromise their proclamation of the gospel. In Acts 4, Peter and John were ordered to stop preaching. Their answer was, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Through the centuries, Christianity has taught that civil disobedience is not only permitted, but is sometimes required. There is no more eloquent defense of the rights and duties of religious conscience than the one offered by Martin Luther King Jr. in his letter from a Birmingham jail. Writing from an explicitly Christian perspective and citing Christian writers such as Augustine and Aquinas, King taught that just laws elevate and ennoble human beings because they are rooted in the moral law whose ultimate source is God himself. Unjust laws degrade human beings in as much as they claim no authority beyond their sheer will, they lack any power to bind conscience. King's willingness to go to jail rather than comply with legal injustice was exemplary and inspiring. And this is them writing, Because we honor justice and the common good, we will not comply with any edict that purports to compel our institutions to participate in abortions, embryo-destructive research, assisted suicide, and euthanasia, or any other anti-life act. Nor will we will bend to any rule purporting to force us to bless immoral sexual partnerships, treat them as marriages or the equivalent, or refrain from proclaiming the truth as we know it about morality and immorality and the marriage and the family. We will fully and ungrudgingly render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But under no circumstances will we render to Caesar what is God's. Jesus paid it all. And yet all to him we owe.
Will we pay that which we owe him as an act of devotion when we are faced with that decision? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen.